passage of Scripture because it's so full of verbs. If you look at the verbs in this passage of Scripture, certainly Jesus is saying, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. The verbs in this really kind of establish the passage for what it is. Clearly, it says that our faith as Christians is a faith that should be active and not passive. And that is a very, very active final statement from Jesus. And the beauty is that during the past 2,000 years since that passage was spoken by Jesus, Christians have courageously followed Jesus' words and taken the gospel throughout the world. Everyone in this room who is saved has been saved as a result of one of those courageous individuals who took the gospel. And what a blessing it is to be saved, to know that we have that eternal security. But along with the obedience in following Jesus' great commission, there has been a great cost. Since Jesus spoke those words 2,000 years ago, approximately 70 million, that's with an M, Christians have been martyred for their faith. Every year it's estimated that between 50,000 and 100,000 Christians also are martyred. That number, by the way, is going up. It's going up in large part because of Islamic extremism, which we hear about almost every day now on the news. So it's come at a great cost, but how thankful I am for the impact that people's courage has had on, on me and in my faith. <clears throat> and while it's very easy to ignore this passage of Scripture, I don't think that it's a passage of Scripture that we can afford to ignore because our future, your children's church, your grandchildren's church, largely hinges upon our capacity as a congregation to follow that calling. Now, that calling could be overseas, and Sarah and I are going to talk to you about that, but it could be something as simple as going next door to your unsaved neighbor. I ask you today, who has God placed on your heart to witness to? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's an unsaved family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody else. I feel very thankful that the gospel came into our family as a result of, uh, of somebody's courageous they, they asked my aunt when she was seven years old to go to vacation Bible school. Never, ever discount the significance of all the games and everything they're playing in vacation Bible school. Vacation Bible school has, a, has the chance. It's changing lives. Our family's lives were changed as a result of vacation Bible school. My aunt went there when she was seven years old. The Holy Spirit touched her life, and then she came home and she told her parents, my grandparents, they accepted Christ. And then my other aunt accepted Christ. And then my dad accepted Christ. And as a result of one neighbor's courage in asking my aunt to go to vacation Bible school, all of a sudden now we've had Jesus in our family for the last four generations. Powerful what a single invitation to vacation Bible school can do for a family. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. Going to church every morning was as common for me as a boy as it was to ride a bike. And I had all the benefits that many of you never had, especially if you're first-generation Christians. I had all those things. 
I went to Christian schools. Uh, my dad worked in Christian broadcasting. And so we were always surrounded by, by Christians. And yet growing up in it, I don't think I ever realized how special it was. Our church would have missionaries come, and I would hear their presentations. I, I, I respected them, but I never felt that calling. Growing up in Southern California, a lot of my classmates would go down to Mexico to witness. They would go on short-term mission trips. I never felt that calling. I was always, I wanted my comfort in life. And a lot of my comfort, I, I saw myself staying in the United States, working a nice job, doing what I could at church, but never really putting myself out there. Everything changed when I was, I was living in Helena, Montana at the time. And I was, I was doing youth ministry, loved doing youth ministry. And all of a sudden, and Helena's a beautiful city, if you've ever been in, in, in Helena, right there in the mountains in central Montana. Uh, all of a sudden, I felt the call, the first significant call in my life to, other than to accept Christ, the, the, the first significant call, that call was to move to Chicago, which is the last place I wanted to go. Because there's a lot of people there, and it's flat. But gradually, after dragging my feet for two years or so, uh, I finally went up, wound up going to Chicago. I went there because uh, I had the opportunity to go to graduate school in a, in a seminary on the north side of Chicago. And while I was there, I went there to pursue a degree in counseling psychology. Once again, I had no interest in missions. I was just going there to get my degree and then come back to the mountains. That was the focus. And then all of a sudden, guess what happened? I started to meet missionaries. And rather than these, these holier people, I, I, I always equated missionaries as being like on the level of the Pope. Uh, I, that, that was kind of my view. I started to see them as people for the first time. And I wasn't interacting with missionaries in my classes. I wasn't necessarily interacting with them in the chow hall or the dormitories. Sadly, a lot of my interactions with missionaries came in the counseling center where I was working. I did uh, two years of internships there in the university counseling center. And here's what I discovered. A lot, of Christian, a lot of missionaries today are getting beat up by the process. They're going out there to these remote areas. They're giving up everything, and it's tough work. They're going to areas sometimes where there is no, nothing that we would seem, seem normal to us, like water safe water to drink, electricity, things like that. And as a result, what happens, and it's not just that, they're going out there, and as the leaders, as the ones that are starting the churches, who do you have to turn to if you're the leader in the church? All the more reason to keep Pastor Brian, our elders, in prayer, because it can be lonely in that place. And these missionaries were lonely, and sometimes in their loneliness, depression would sink in. Sometimes in the face of civil unrest, They'd be traumatized. They'd still go about it, but yet when they came back stateside, all that stuff started spilling out of them. And what's even sadder, and I'm going to try not to tear up when I describe this fella, is that sometimes in the face of real hardships, sin also creeps in. I remember one of my patients. He was a man who was responsible basically for an entire continent, he was the leader. He described how the loneliness and everything sank in. He was doing his best. Um, and then shortly thereafter, sexual sin sank in. 
and he came to me for help, and it's those sorts of things. And he was a man whose courage I will never, ever obtain. I mean, he was, he was right there on the front lines. And so I started seeing these problems, and that's when I started to understand, I think, what missions is all about for the first time. I put it aside, though. Ten years have now elapsed since I was in seminary. Last June, I was listening to a sermon on the radio, and we're not going to go through it all because we're going to be a little bit pressed for time the way it is. But the sermon came from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35. In summation, the sermon is about the disciple Philip, who feels the call to leave a vibrant ministry in Jerusalem, and he goes miles and miles away for untold amount of time to witness to one guy who happened to be an Ethiopian. And as a result of his actions, the gospel comes to Africa for the first time. No previous gospel in the entire continent. Philip leaves a vibrant ministry. And though I would never, ever compare myself to Philip, I saw God using people that way. And independently, Sarah and I at the time started just kind of feeling that nudge to maybe do something overseas. Long story short, three months later in September of last year, we discovered that an that a international school where Sarah used to work was not only looking for educators, they were also looking for somebody like me, somebody who could do the whole Christian counseling thing, mental health. And so we prayed about it, prayed a lot about it, given the location. And then eventually in December, a couple of months ago, we decided to uh, sign contracts. We felt the, the leaning to sign contracts uh, with the intent of starting at Dakar Academy here uh, this, coming, uh, this coming start of the school year. But my words can only tell you so much about this faraway place. What I thought we could do for a couple of minutes is show you a video of what Dakar, what Senegal really is about, and then I'll come back up on stage with Sarah, and we'll talk a little bit more. Dakar Academy is situated in Dakar, which is the capital city of Senegal, which is the westernmost country in Africa. Um, we are in a big city, a large city, a number of millions, I guess maybe around five or six million people. The country of Senegal is about 94% Muslim. But Dakar is uh, probably one of the most developed uh, cities of West Africa at this point. Dakar Academy sits on about seven acres, and we have several different buildings. We have an elementary building, um, high school building, middle school building, several athletic courts, a library, um, and several dorms, three dorms on campus. It's so much more important to realize that a place uh, like Dakar Academy is really all about the people. Uh, we are a K through 12 school that runs between 200 and 250 students annually. Um, teachers here um, continue to call students to a very high level of excellence. We have a full athletic program here that includes uh, varsity sports and basketball, 
volleyball, softball, and of course soccer. I think sometimes that uh, schools for missionary kids like Dakar Academy are some of the best kept secrets in the world. Uh, Dakar Academy is now 52 years old. They were established in 1961. And our theme is shaping lives and shining lights. And we believe that as students graduate from Dakar Academy, they are prepared to do exactly that, to shape the lives of other people and to shine their lights brightly for Jesus. So that's kind of a snapshot of, of where we're going to go. Uh, a couple of things I want to I point out. Uh, the country of Senegal is between 94 and 95% Muslim. Less than 1% Christian. And of that 1%, you, uh, even smaller percent would be considered evangelical. There's Catholics and, and things like that included in that 1%. Senegal is a fairly stable democracy in an area that has known nothing but instability um, in, in the past 100 years or so. Especially recently, as we see stories about what's going on in Paris or Brussels, what's also going on is that there is a turf battle between ISIS and a competing Islamic group called Aqwim, which is Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. They're basically competing to see who can be the most brutal. They've carried out attacks in the past year in the country of Mali, Burkina Faso, and Cote d'Ivoire. Those attacks have claimed the lives of missionaries. And while we're not going over there with the intention of being martyrs, our intention is to go over there and help assist during these times. Uh, every time there's an attack like that, it creates a ripple effect. Remember, these communities are tight-knit. And every time there's an attack like this, it spreads throughout the entire uh, community. Just like if somebody in our congregation was attacked, that would spread throughout our entire congregation. And unfortunately, what oftentimes happens is that people are traumatized as a result of that. So much so that missionaries in West Africa are 10 times more likely to experience significant trauma than us here in the United States. That's the risk at play here. Not only do you have the potential for violence, but you also have um, a lot of evacuations that have occurred. In fact, in the past six years, there's been five total evacuations that have come uh, right through Dakar because of its relative stability. They evacuate people from surrounding countries because of things like Ebola, civil unrest, and all manner of other tragedies. And our calling, my calling in particular, I've been trained through my work to work with people who have been traumatized. And here's what's so beautiful. You take somebody who's seen something horrible, and I've seen a few in my day, and if you treat them right away, if you come face to face, if you sit down with them, if you love them, if you comfort them, then that, that immediate contact, just like putting a bandage on a wound after somebody's been in a car accident, putting a disinfectant on a wound, that can, psychologically speaking, prevent a lot of the long-term damage that we hear about, especially among our veterans. Things like post-traumatic stress disorder. If you reach somebody right away, you can lower the incidence, which to me is really exciting. You can also lower the incidence of things like depression, anxiety, and when somebody is chronically feeling traumatized, what you also see is them turning to things like alcohol, even, even missionaries. 
just as a way to escape. And so part of what I'm going to be doing is taking you know, right to people who have been traumatized, whether it's missionaries, whether it's expatriates, whether it's citizens right there in the face of that. <clears throat> also be working with students. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about that here in a second. I want to turn it over to Sarah because Sarah, unlike me, has actually been to Dakar. And she's going to tell you a little bit about her experience and her, uh, what God's laid on her heart. Hi, good morning. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit more about Dakar and the Senegalese people, and then a little bit more about um, my heart and our heart in ministry, and what that's potentially going to look like over there. Um, Senegal, like many African countries, is, is a relatively poor country. Um, we are going to be in a very well-developed city, but in general, it's very poor. Um, because of that, what they value is not possessions because they don't have it. They value relationships and they value people. So they're very friendly, very open, very compassionate. Um, have you ever heard the saying, it takes a village to raise a child? Over there, it's so true. I, everybody's looking out for everybody. And if you're a kiddo, you're not going to get away with anything because you have all of moms and dads everywhere. Um, so looking at that, if you can just picture for me real quickly the, that desire for community and that need for it, and that's really all that they have. Picture a Muslim person turning to Christ and the kind of consequences that that, that would create. Um, I spent some time in San Luis mis visiting with some missionaries. I actually handed out um, Operation Christian uh, Christmas boxes um, during that time. But anyways, we went to an orphanage, and I met a woman who was a believer. She had been working in the orphanage for years at that point, and she had become a, a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, years before, and her husband kicked her out of the home. And so for three years, she sat outside her house, slept in the door jam, waiting for an opportunity for her family, her husband and her three children, three children, to take her back. And so it's a very, very difficult place for the gospel because Muslim Islam is very steep in there as well as some other animalistic um, religions that the Africans have there. But this is, this is an opportunity um, for God to move. And we're going to show a video at the end of this, and you're going to be able to see that God is moving, and it's amazing. And we're very, very excited to be a part of that. Um, I could tell you stories and stories and stories about my time over there, but I won't because I, I, I know we need to get going. But I do want to share a little bit more about my heart for missionaries over there. Um, you have to understand that, that it's a very kind of dark, oppressive place. Um, it's hard. It's very hard physically, mentally, and spiritually on, on missionaries. Uh, mentally, they're constantly having to adjust for this new, this new culture, even if they've been there for years. Something as simple as getting from point A to point B can be very, very complicated. And meeting up with a Senegalese to talk about whatever business or whatever the case may be can be very difficult and very taxing, not to mention the language or languages that they need to learn. Um, it can also be very physically taxing. It's hot. That's something you can be praying for us about. Um, it, it's hot. Electricity and water is, is sporadic at best. Um, but the most difficult is just the spiritual darkness. And there, there is a darkness there, um, even though people are very, very friendly. Um, I didn't notice it my first year there, but my second year, I did notice um, people cursing me. I was, I'm an infidel. I'm not a follower of Islam. And so they would see me. I'm white. I'm obviously an infidel. And they would say this little curse and spit on the ground. And, and you feel that. 
And that's why Dakar Academy is such an oasis um, in that because missionaries, the community at large, can come to one central place and, and be filled. Um, my heart in particular is for um, discipleship and mentorship. And being a teacher in Dakar Academy will give me the opportunity not only to teach children, students, but to also be a mentor, be a disciple to them. I mean, you live with these people, you work with these people, you can't get away from these people. And so that is kind of our great joy. And I know I saw a lot of heartbreak, even with the missionaries. I saw one couple in the two years that I was there. I don't know what happened, but they their marriage was on the rocks, and they had to leave the field, go back stateside to try to get their marriage worked out, and they ended up getting a divorce. Um, and so that's really my passion and our passion is to go and, and support these missionaries, love on them, mentor, disciple, uh, minister to, and minister with. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, <clears throat> another part of this, another thing that Sarah and I feel deeply passionate about is direct evangelism. Uh, keep in mind that the school is 70% missionary kid, but the other 30%, you could have uh, a lot of kids that are unsaved. And so it's going to present an opportunity to, uh, to work directly with unsaved youth. And, and Sarah and I, we've loved working with your children, and uh, our goal is to be able to take that one step to some of these, uh, some of these kids abroad. So to reach, to spread the gospel that way, and then through uh, engaging in outreach efforts um, into the, the local communities. Uh, I will be probably the only English-speaking mental health person in the entire country. Uh, so, so you can see that that need definitely exists there as well. My goal is to not only uh, provide counseling for the expatriates, the missionaries, the students, but also uh, to eventually branch out into the, the community and work with nationals. That's my goal because I believe that any effective counseling should take you directly uh, to the source of good counsel, which is the Bible. So, so that's kind of our goal. That's how we hope to change lives as we, uh, as we embark upon this journey. The hard part about this, and this is where this is, this is challenging for us, uh, is that we need a lot of financial support in, to, in, order, to, uh, in order to see this happen. Uh, right now, we're needing about $1,000 per month uh, in, order to, in order to do this. And it's hard to get up here and ask for money because you've already given us so much. Uh, but this is kind of where the rubber, unfortunately, meets the road for us. We need financial support and we need a lot of prayer support because we, too, will be vulnerable as we go over there. Uh, so we need about $1,000 pledged per month. And we're needing some upfront money as well, about $5,000 in order to just get over there. Vaccinations for yellow fever, I, I found are expensive. Uh, and uh, and uh, moving expenses, even though I've moved a few times, moving overseas, that gets kind of expensive. And so we have, uh, we, we have those needs right away. Our goal at this point is to go over there for about four years, largely because I think it's going to take about three and a half years for me to figure out how to speak French. Uh, and um, maybe another half year to actually have the courage to speak it. Um, so, uh, so, so that's, that's part of it. And they, they need some consistency over there. So, so we're thinking about doing this for four years. Here's how we view all this. 
Number one, you're not giving any money to us. You're giving money to God. We're going to be going through a mission organization called RCE, which is Resourcing Christian Educators. They specialize in sending people to international schools like the Car Academy. But this is not to Sarah and I. This is uh, to, to God, as you feel led. Um, and as we're developing a budget here, we, we really ask and, and pray that God would put it on your heart to start giving right away because as you start, then we start to establish a budget. And without 100% of our funding goal, uh, the mission organization said they're not going to send us over there and, so that we can be destitute. So we need to start that right away, uh, even though we won't be moving for another three or four months. So, so that's kind of the immediate need. And once again, um, the financial side is hard to talk about, but it's, it's really there. It's really about you being partners with us. Uh, one of my favorite speakers, Ravi Zacharias, who has been all over the world doing evangelism, he talks about how the true, oftentimes unsung heroes are the people who stay here stateside and continue to support missionaries. You don't get to come up on stage. You don't get to talk about this and this and this. But every month you faithfully donate $25, $50, whatever God has laid on your heart. You who are, in, are thinking about supporting us, you're the true heroes in all this. Sir and I, there's nothing special about us. Uh, we, we've moved a lot in our life. We're comfortable in moving vans and airports. I mean, that's what we've, that's what we've done. Uh, between the two of us, I, I think we've moved probably 25 or 30 times in our life. So, so we've done that. That's comfortable to us. Going and working with hurting people, that's, that's comfortable to us. Um, so we're just doing it. There's nothing, there's nothing special about us. Um, but what's really special is when a whole group gathers around a couple of missionaries, and then you get to see the really cool things that God can do through our combined efforts, especially in a time where all you have to do is look at the news stories to see how difficult uh, the world has become, due in large part to some of the Islamic extremism out there. Uh, and Sarah's going to now tell you everything that I forgot to tell you. Um, one thing to mention real quick, um, RCE, um, Resourcing Christian International, uh, Christian Educators International, they serve or they send out about 500 educators all around the world. Um, and so they're, they're pretty well established. Um, anything that you give us is tax deductible, so kind of keep that in mind. We have a table in the back. Please stop by. We have prayer cards. Put us on your fridge. Pray for us. Um, we will need prayer. Prayer is, is the most important thing um, that you can do for us, period. Um, there is two different ways that you can uh, choose to support us if you pray about it and God lays it on your heart. One is just the um, our business cards. If you look at the bottom there underneath RCE International, there's the web address. Go on there, click on the donate tab, and plug in our names and then just fill out the form. That would take money directly out of your bank account each month. The other way, if you do, don't, you don't like that way for whatever reason, we also have these. You fill it out and you physically mail it in. And that would be more for people who wanted to write a check every month. So those are kind of the, the two things that, um, two ways that you can support us financially. Um, we're going to be in the back. We would love to meet with you, to chat with you. If you want to schedule um, a more intimate setting where we chat with you about stories of Africa or what we're going to be doing over there, please let us know. We'd love to meet with you. Um, in closing, the video that we're going to be showing, I kind of alluded to it. Um, twice a year, Dakar Academy sends a outreach team 
to the different surrounding villages. They've done this for years and years, ever since I've been there, so for 12 years plus. Um, they go, they do crafts, they do like a VBS, they do a puppet show, they do a kind of an acting show where they face, they paint their like faces medical white. Medical services. Medical services, what else am I forgetting? Uh, they also do a lot of construction. They build a roof, they built a church once. Um, and they often go back to the same places. So one year they may build the foundation for a church, the next year the walls, the next the year after that the roof. Um, and this video, we there's a, one that's amazing, but it's 10 minutes and we did not want to show that because it's a little too long. But this mm -hmm. one shows more this year what happened, and, and it's amazing to see what God's doing. Um, so thank you. Thanks, everybody. Our academy outreach is a huge focus. Our passion is to let them know that even at a young age, these high schoolers can see Jesus move through them to reach the Senegalese people. Two of the biggest events is our biannual outreach weekend, where we go to villages in the outlying area and we proclaim the gospel using the kids' interests and talents, everything from puppets and drama to painting, construction, medical, on n'était pas venu tout simplement en parole, hein, mais on était venu également en action, des choses qu'on ne peut pas séparer. Parce que la Bible dit que la foi sans les œuvres est une foi qui est vaine, qui est morte. One of the new ministries that we added this year that we've never had before is praying for people who came to be treated medically. The students were washing people's feet and asking them, can we pray for you? So some people were being healed before they even got inside to see the medical personnel. When the child evangelism team and the drama teams went out to these outlying villages, they ran up to the students and said, we heard your God heals, will you pray? And they would bring their sick. This time during outreach, it was really quite different. We could tell that God was moving and he had a plan for the village. And there's one girl in particular that just God had an amazing story for her. We went into um, one village that was previously closed to the gospel, but they let in the drama team. At the end, we asked if anybody wanted prayer, and so they brought forth this girl. Her leg was curled under, and her ankle was bent. Her foot was turned underneath. She was walking on her knees. The only way she could get around was by just dragging herself through the sand with her hands. First impression was, this would be huge if the Lord could heal her. We prayed for her once, and nothing really happened. We prayed again and again and again. I just felt, you know, convicted that sometimes it takes more than one prayer. Every time we prayed for her, she, she rose up a little higher and she could walk a couple steps farther. For the first time in 10 years, she was walking under her own power um, around the ground. Everybody in the village was going nuts. They have never seen a guérison. They will know that there is something more powerful than what we believe, we who are not Christians. The dad came forth and talked to our pastor. What he told us was since he saw what Jesus could do, since he saw this healing, they were going to take her grigris off, which are fetishes for protection and things like that. And they said if she wants to, she can become a Christian. People were coming up and saying, this whole village knows what you're doing. There were grown men that were crying, that were weeping as our kids would pray for them or as our kids would wash their, their feet. Literally thousands of people were coming out to hear the gospel. People at the campaign were, were chanting, Yesu, Yesu, Yesu. And so it's like, where did this come from? You know, these are they people, don't even know Jesus. They don't even know Jesus, and they're chanting his name. After 
we left and came back here, uh, the pastors called us and said, we are just getting inundated uh, by people asking more questions. What about this Jesus? Can these kids come back to our village? Usually we go in and God blesses our work, but this time God did his own thing. He healed people. He performed miracles. He opened doors that would, never, would have never been opened if it was just in our hands. Aujourd'hui, la population est très ouverte par rapport à l'évangile. Quand ils passent, ils t'écoutent, ils t'accueillent de façon chaleureuse parce qu'ils ont vu exactement ce qui a été fait. The villagers have said themselves they have seen the compassion of, of the kids. That's what really spoke to them. It's more than just showing up and, and talking about Jesus. It's showing Jesus. It's not just talking about love. It's letting the people see the love of Jesus coming through us. As I was watching the video, um, I kind of had uh, visions, flashes back to uh, Titus, Aboka, and uh, you know, you know, he's a prayer warrior, and it's because of this. You know, they were talking about medical. I mean, they can only go so far medically in these remote villages, and Titus has said this himself. He says, "We we pray because the medical can only go so far, and a lot of times they don't have the medical." So they pray, and they pray, and so Titus has stories like this where people were healed, and uh, so that's one reason why Titus is so fervent about praying for us and uh, praying in our church. Let's pray, and we're going to pray for Paul and Sarah, and we'll bring our service to the close, so let's pray together. God, we do thank you for who you are. Nothing is impossible with you. In spite of reservations we may hold, in spite of our limitations, God, you do amazing things. Lord, you're going to use Paul and Sarah to do amazing things. We know, first of all, it's you that's doing it, but you're going to use Paul and Sarah. And so we're excited for them, and we're praying for them as a church body. God, we want to see them do wonderful things in the power that you provide. Lord, their journey is starting. Lord, we as a church have this privilege of walking with them. So, Father, be with them now as they raise their prayer warriors that will pray for them. In addition to that, Lord, be with those, I mean, as you raise up support. And Lord, I know this is all new to us as a church body, and I know we're all asking, okay, how can we help? Lord, we want to just submit to you right now and say that we're open to be used by you in whatever fashion. If that be giving financially, Lord, we're open. If it's just prayer, Lord, we know prayer is so important. Lord, we're open. Lord, we just want to join you in the harvest. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.